Thank you, very, thank you very much, Larry. Let's look to God in prayer. Thank you, O God, for the opportunity to look into the book of Revelation once again. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would use this time together to bring honor and glory to you and to your great name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So today we again come to the book of Revelation looking at the, at the saints, the saints who are crying out under the altar, and also looking at the sealing of the 144,000, the sealing of God's people, and re- looking at all of these in the question, who are these? John, the writer of the book of Revelation, was banished as a prisoner on the island of Patmos. Now, the island of Patmos was a rocky island off the coast of the Aegean Sea. And the scripture says, it's recorded in Revelation, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And as he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he received these visions from God. He received these visions as he was in contact with the divine, and then he took the time to pen these visions and and for the hope and encouragement of the early church, the hope and encouragement of the believers in that era, and also for hope and encouragement in our time. With that, I would like to look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And uh, in your pew Bibles, that's on page 1219. It's also on the screen. I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then the horse, another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword, and when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, 
and by the wild beasts of the earth. So it was the Lamb who was qualified as John was crying. John wept. In one of my earlier sermons, I mentioned about that, that John was weeping because they couldn't find anyone to open these seals that, that were sealing the parchment until finally they discovered that the Lamb, Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was now alive forever and ever, was able, was empowered to open the seals. And we, along with John, see the suffering and the evil that is released on the earth. One by one, as the seals are broken open, and for each of the first four seals, a horseman rides forth when the seal is broken open. And you, that's the answer to the first one, the first blank in your, on your, um, in your bulletin as you turn to that section of message notes. So um, a horseman rides forth when the seal is open. And each horseman is riding a different colored horse. And those different colors are symbolic as to the meaning of the, the horse or the meaning of riding that horse. Sometimes this is called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And here is how one author depicts it. You notice the black, you notice the white, the red, and the green horse, or the pale horse, uh, in many translations refers to the green one. So the first horseman rides a white horse, symbolizing war and invasion. And the rider of this horse rode out as a conqueror. Throughout the history, there have been the history of civilization. There have been many wars where one nation attempts to take over another, another nation, invades or has an incursion into another nation. And this is what this horse symbolizes. The first horseman, a white horse, symbolizing war and invasion. The second horseman rides a red horse, and the rider had a large sword. And this is probably a symbol of the civil strife and the discord and uprisings of, of the nations or the people in the nations. One commentator says, quote, the mission of the red horse would be quickly understood in John's day which was well acquainted with rebellion and civil disorder. In one year, he says, A.D. 68-69, Rome had been ruled by four different emperors, end quote. The next horse, the third horse, is a black horse. And here we know the symbol. We know almost beyond a shadow of a doubt what this is referring to, because he's carrying a scales, he's also measuring out the wheat and the barley. And the wheat and the barley, the price of those two items, the wheat for those who were more well-off, the barley, which was the poor, the people, the food for the poor people, and these were like 10 to 12 times higher in price than normal. So this indicates the famine, the lack of food, probably also from warfare, probably from the, the, dis, the, uh, the civil discord 
that was taking place. And so for a day's work, a man could buy only enough wheat for himself and barley, the food uh, for those who were less well off, was uh, slightly bit cheaper. The last horse is a pale green, the color of a corpse, the color of death. And the riders of this horse are identified as death and the grave. And they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth. Commentator John Yates explains the meaning of the fraction one-fourth. He says, the fraction communicates that no matter how much war, civil strife, famine, and death are experienced in this world, God God's mercy preserves those who overcome, end of quote. So these four horsemen that ride forth as a result of the opening of the seals or when the seals are open, when the lamb opens the seals, indicate a picture of human history down through the ages that death and warfare and famine and pain are all part of the human condition. From many, many years, like I said, we don't have to, in fact, as we study history, many times the, the studying the history is studying one war right after another. So John sees the vision, and he catches a review of the history of humanity and the horrible experiences of war, civil strife, famine, and death. I probably don't need to try to convince you that wars continue to this era and to our time and to our day. Wars and bloodshed. The country of Syria has been involved in what has now been a five-year-old civil war. And at this present time, there's an uneasy truth that continues to hold, or an uneasy truce that continues to hold. And according to the Syrian policy for, for research, the death toll from this war is a total of about 470,000 people. 470,000 people have died approximately as a result of this five-year-old civil war. And perhaps we can grasp this a bit better if we can understand or visualize the number of people. And that would be wiping out the city of, of uh, Miami, Florida, or another city a similar size, Atlanta, Georgia. Both of them have approximately 470,000 people in population. And National Public Radio reported last week, quote, a long-anticipated international convoy carrying desperately needed aid to a besieged suburb of Damascus was refused entry by the Syrian government forces. The International Committee of the Red Cross and the UN said in a joint statement that the convoy was refused entry at the last government checkpoint despite having obtained prior clearances by all parties that it would proceed. 
It was the United Nations then that later released a statement saying that the mission was aborted because the convoy was refused entry due to the medical and nutritional supplies on board. And it called the conditions imposed by the government's security personnel unacceptable and contrary to earlier guarantees and approvals obtained by the Syrian government, end quote. Also, due to this five-year-old civil war, the life expectancy of the Syrian people has dropped from 70 years prior to the war down to an, now an age of 56, with an even steeper decline for Syrian men. Other violence continues in the Middle East. Last fall, in fact, a wave of fresh violence broke out between Israelis and the Palestinians. And the Palestinians uh, continue to be subjugated by the Israelis in this this continuing uh, encounter. And Mona, an engineering student, describes a situation 14 years ago. She says, quote, over the past two years, there have been frequent periods when the Israeli army has occupied my city of Nablus. On June 20, 2002, all of the students living outside the city had a difficult time. I was happy to finish my exams, but many of the students could not make it back into the city to complete their final exam. Sometimes we try to find any way to get to our university, and we become stronger as we feel we should not surrender, and no one should prevent a student from going to class. End of quote. Let's look now at Revelation 6, 9 to 11, when the next seal is opened. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So when the fifth seal was open, John sees the martyrs. John sees the martyrs that were under the altar in the temple. And John Yates comments, and this is on the PowerPoint, Just as Christ the Lamb was slain on the cross for the sins of the world, so Christians are persecuted and even die as a result of their testimony for Christ. This this past week, I was reminded by a Facebook post that February 16, 1529, was a date that Dirk Williams was martyred, was killed for his faith, for his faith. 
You may recall the story that Willems was uh, escaped from prison and he was fleeing across the ice and then he helped his pursuer. He came, went back and he helped his pursuer who had fallen through the ice while chasing Willems. Willems was then, as a result of that, was then recaptured and tortured and burned at the stake, as I mentioned, on that date of May 16, 1569. Just an example of one martyr, an example of one person in our Anabaptist history that was martyred for his faith. And also, because he did the good deed, he, he still experienced the death as a result of what he did. John, in his vision recorded in Revelation, sees the martyrs in the presence of God under the altar. Leviticus 4, 7 uh, says, The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So John in the heavenlies, John in his vision, sees the saints, the martyred saints, sees these persons who were persecuted and killed for their faith. He sees them under the altar where normally the blood is poured out. And in the same way that Christ the Lamb was slain, the believers do not flinch from death. And the righteous cry out then, the righteous cry out under the altar, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? So they cry out. They cry out for vengeance. They cry out not for themselves, but for those, they're looking for those who will also be killed as a result of their faith. And the original word, meaning of the word translated avenge, is also a desire for justice, a desire, a desire and a plea that God will set things right, a desire that justice will take place. Nelson Crable, in his book on Revelation, comments, the desire for revenge is a common human impulse, and we can find no better setting in which to acknowledge it than in worship. Martyrs in heaven are angry at the tyrants who have killed them. John is angry at Rome, and we should be angry at the injustice in our day. But the point made in Revelation is that in God's time and way, things will be made right. It's not in our role as followers of the Lamb to answer violence with violence or to force matters with our own hands, end quote. So the martyrs then, John sees the martyrs who are given white robes, symbols of victory, and they are told to wait a little longer. In other words, these martyrs need to wait for God's timing. They need to wait for God's plan to take place. They need to wait a little longer, to continue to wait in the throne room as God indeed will make things right. And we need to leave it up to God. Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, says the Lord. We need to leave that up to God and to not take it on ourselves. Let's go then to the next chapter in Revelation. Revelation 7, 9 to 14. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, in the first part of this chapter, in chapter 7, the part that we did not read, God's servants then are sealed. And a seal is an official insignia that's printed on either parchment or on paper. Paul tells the Corinthians, but it is God who establishes us with with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as our first installment. So God puts his seal on us. And here John sees 144,000, which is symbolic of the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are sealed. And they symbolize the church. They symbolize the believers who are committed to the kingdom of God. It's so 144,000 is 12 times 12 plus the cube of 10. The cube of 10 is 1,000, symbolizing the completeness of, the completeness of the people of God, a great multitude. The servants of our God are marked with a seal on their forehead, in the say as John sees it. And also Paul says, we are sealed by the Spirit, by his Spirit. And this seal is like, that is marked of the saints are marked is similar to the seal of those who follow the, the enemy, who follow the devil. They are also given a seal and probably is not a literal seal. So we see in these verses the global and the, the various ethnicities that make up the church, that make up the people of God. And preparing for the sermon and thinking about the, the diversity of people who are part of the people of God, reminded me of the gathering that we have in Mennonite World Conference. Uh, People from all over the world. Of course, 
here is more than just Mennonites, but it is all people from all over the world who are part of the family of God who give allegiance to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The heavenly beings sing a song to God. They fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a marvelous way to worship. And then one of the elders asked, Who are these? Who are these? And the answer is, They have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and when they have done that, they have become white. And then, verses, looking then at verses 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat them down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see in this picture that the stresses of earthly life are gone. They will hunger no more and they will not thirst. All the things that are needed to sustain earthly life are no longer needed by this heavenly throng. William Hendricks points out, that the Dutch have a term for dying, which literally means to get over or beyond suffering. And whenever a believer in Christ dies, this truth is expressed. So here, in John's vision, John sees that the, the lamb at the center of the throne, the lamb here in the presence of God, becomes their shepherd. The lamb, think of it, the lamb has been transformed into a shepherd and will lead them to springs of living water, leading the saints in heaven. Who are these? Who are these? They are the survivors of the great ordeal. They are the survivors of the tribulation. They are now beyond pain. They are beyond the suffering. They have now reached their place in heaven. Let's look at the takeaways. First, Jesus the Lamb, who is also our shepherd, walks with us in the midst of pain, difficulty, famine, war, and loss. According to Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not representing a God who is detached from creation. In the midst of Jesus, Jesus represents God who loves each one of us and is concerned and cares about each one of us, as we talked earlier about Jesus loving us. Jesus walked this earth. Jesus healed people. Jesus cast out demons 
related to the outcasts of this society, of his society. And in that way, in that way, for us, he demonstrated that that God loves us. In that way, he demonstrated and portrayed the love of God. A book that I really enjoyed reading was the book by Jessica Kelly entitled Lord Willing? And she, in this book, wrestles with the role of God in the the death of her four-year-old son and his death was because of brain cancer. And she shares profound theological insights. She evidently did a tremendous amount of study and reading. And as she comes to terms or tries to come to terms with this horrendous loss and accepts this, these happenings in her life and these experiences, which she decides are outside the complete and the perfect will of God. And she wrestles with the question, if God is all-powerful and if God is all-loving, why do we suffer? Is God not able to abolish disease and to spare the life of a little boy? Why did this happen to her and to her family? Was it, as some suggested to her, because of sin in her own life? She wrestles with that throughout this book. The second takeaway is that we in our day need to be ready to suffer for our faith, including giving up our lives for the cause of Christ. We need to be ready, even as Dirk Willems was ready. We need to be ready to suffer for Christ and give our lives to him. We need to strengthen our faith so that we can remain strong in the midst of persecution. And we need to prepare. We need to prepare for persecution by memorizing scripture, by learning songs, by building our faith, by reading and studying the scriptures. And to encourage one another in our walk with Christ, we need to be prepared because we do not know when persecution will come to our own country and our own land. We are called to pray for those whose faith is under fire. Thirdly, the third takeaway is that people in anguish and pain pray for justice. The saints under the altar cry out for those who are still on the earth, for those who were also sacrificed their lives for Christ. They do not suffer in vain. There will be a new order, and as we see later in this book, there will be judgment upon the great harlot, judgment upon the evil, the great harlot who deceives the nations. Now in conclusion... Clarence Jordan's brother was a state senator and a chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. And when he was asked to support Clarence Jordan's racially integrated Koinonia farms, Clarence's brother declined. And he said, I follow Jesus up to a point. And Clarence asked, could that point be the cross? And his brother responded, that's right. I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. 
I'm not going to get myself crucified, end of quote. In contrast, I would appeal to each of us as sisters and brothers in Christ, let us follow the example of Christ, let us follow the example of the martyrs in heaven, and be willing, in contrast to Clarence Jordan's brother, be willing to get ourselves crucified. God is present with us, and God will make all things right in God's time and in the end. Amen. Thank you.